Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith, and on this episode, I'm joined by one of the most prominent conservatives in Canada, Michelle Rempel-Garner. Michelle was first elected in 2011 and represents the riding of Calgary Nose Hill. She served as a minister in the Harper government, and she's been one of Prime Minister Trudeau's fiercest critics. She also very much does her own thing, using her voice not only to hold the government to account, but also to push her own party at times. I asked Michelle to join me because of her recent writing about the very bizarre World Economic Forum conspiracy theory, but its real direct impact on her own life, as well as some of the criticism she's directed at her own caucus colleagues for trafficking in those very same conspiracies. We also discussed the conservative leadership race, her recent support for electoral reform, her crypto legislation, the need for constructive dissent, and animal welfare, an issue we've had the opportunity to work together on in the past. Michelle, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. You are my third conservative guest. I've had Michael Chong. I've had Eric Duncan. And now I have the most sensible conservative of them all. I have you join me. People are going to wonder about you, Nate. Jeez. (laughs) (laughs) I've also had Charlie Angus and Leah Gazan. So I run run the gamut. But I reached out to you because you wrote an article recently. You've written a few articles recently, which we can talk about. But you wrote an article recently about the World Economic Forum conspiracy theory. Your conclusion is correct. The World Economic Forum conspiracy theory is a conspiracy theory that elected officials should push back on and should call out. And, and every Canadian has a responsibility to push back on, on these conspiracy theories. But you wrote, it was evening. The bar was crowded. We had just finished our meals and my husband Jeff spotted the trouble before I did. A thickly built man seated at the bar was paying too much attention to me. He crossed the floor of the restaurant, camera in hand. His actions and his posture clearly said that he was bent on physically harming me, causing an altercation or both. As he charged forward, he started yelling at us about the World Economic Forum, demanding that I answer questions about my ties to Klaus Schwab. What the hell is happening that that happens to someone like you? Uh, That's what a way to start. Um, I think it's really important to talk about the conspiracy theory itself. So as I wrote in that article, and there's a, there's a few members of your, of your caucus, there's other members in my party, there's a lot of other Canadians that aren't politicians who have been named to something called the Young Global Leader Program in the World Economic Forum. And it, it's a program where they name sort of up-and-comers from around, around the world, uh, ostensibly to meet together and learn from one another, et cetera. So, so it's my, was this award, which, so I've never been a member of the World Economic Forum uh, and the, the award, I think it's like a five-year program. It's long expired for me. That's where the association comes from for me. I, I want to be very clear though, uh, like the World Economic Forum itself, it's, I would consider it more of a left-wing think tank. So it's a think tank. It puts out policy papers as other think tanks, even in Canada do, you know, think like the McDonald Laurier Institute or pick, pick your poison, right? So they put out position papers and they also run what everybody knows the World Economic for the big meeting in Davos every year. So I did go to Davos once I paid my own way. It was, um, frankly, a little weird, but I mean, I met, I met a lot of people. I, you know, some people I, I still talk to, but I, I like for, for me, I, I, and you, you must get this all the time, right? Like you're inundated with information. I'm inundated with papers, with position pieces. It doesn't mean that like they're running my life. Right. And I think the conspiracy theory is somehow that this, this man who leads the world economic forum is, is, is controlling you and I. Now, why did that come up? It's because, like, honestly, the World Economic Forum, I, you know, if the, their board of directors are listening, they need to give a, their heads a big shake and, and likely do some sort of considerable organizational review with some firings to, to, to put the leader of the World Economic Forum out to say that he had infiltrated cabinets and had some sort of influence on it. And he did make that statement. It's deeply irresponsible and, and frankly belligerent of the World Economic Forum to say that and, and damaging. So, you know, a lot of people may say that conspiracy theories, a good conspiracy theory always starts with a nugget of truth, right? Well, 
Klaus Schwab did make that statement. It was arrogant. It was disgusting. I denounce that. And I can certainly, I, I don't know about you, but he certainly doesn't have control over me. I'm not sure anyone has control over me. Well, I've never met him, but I would say the entire outfit seems to me, you described it as an uh, overly hyped or highly influential, over, overpriced sales conference, I think is the way you described it. it. It does look from the outside when you look at Davos and you look at the billionaires coming together to do good. There's a certain Bond villain flavor to it. I get sure. that. But it's also mad, just madness to me that anyone would think that this organization has captured governments around the world, has captured individuals like yourself, such that I would come up to you in a restaurant and berate you for it. I mean, if that's if that's how far we've come and we've been scary the rabbit hole, it, it's it's a it, it is it's a scary place. It is. And I I think that it's really important that we, particularly as elected officials, that we don't make those things worse by by platforming them. So in that article, I did call out um, some of my colleagues in my party who have platformed that or given, you know, sort of a wink and a nod to it because the result is what happened to me in that restaurant. And, And frankly, it also, I think... I think it just damages faith in democratic institutions. Now, you know, I would push back a little and say your party has got have has has had its share of 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 contributions to that particular issue. But um, I am very worried. And you know, I, what I would say to you, Nate, is like I think there's a big opportunity for us as members of parliament to sort of take our part, partisan hats off, get together, and say how can each of us move beyond political stripe. And work to address the fertile ground for misinformation and conspiracy that we find ourselves in today, particularly given the impact that it has on Canadian democracy. So I think that's a good place to come together and to try and figure out a way forward, because in a nonpartisan way, and, and I'll I'll criticize my own team, and I said as much in my speech on the Emergencies Act, I I said, you know, if we are so very concerned about polarization in our politics, then we ought to be especially careful on this side of the house, on the liberal side of the house, not to contribute to it. At the same time, I recognize at this moment in time with certain conspiracy theories, including the one we just talked about, we've seen certain very high profile members like you, you don't have to get into the weeds. But when I look at Pierre Poilev's comments around the Great Reset and clearly platforming this in a, in a wink and a nod kind of way. It's not the Dean Allison completely off the ledge kind of way, but it's Pierre Poilev, who has a massive following, a massive platform, and he rightly is focused on affordability for Canadians, rightly focused on housing affordability, and I think really gains traction. And then I see that, and I, and I just want to pull my hair and say, don't go there. Like, that's that's hard, that's problematic for, for all of us if, if you go there. I mean, do, do we want to talk about social media algorithms right now, sort of as a, a bridge onto that? Yeah, I'm a, I'm very bad at hijacking the algorithm, but Pierre's very good at it. No, no, like I, I, and the reason why I bring it up is it's a good, it's sort of a what you just brought up is a segue because I think there's a propensity for us, I'm as as legislators now, where social media is so important for getting any sort of messaging out, or, or frankly having a policy debate. You know, we're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, but I, I heard I heard somebody described the Facebook algorithm as, as like a murmuration of birds, where it's like, if you're, if you imagine yourself as a bird and a murmuration, your flight path is being dictated by the seven birds around you. Right. And that's kind of how the Facebook algorithm works is that your, your algorithm is being dictated by your, your bias. It, 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 it's there to retrench or to calcify your beliefs. So if you, if we're creating content on those platforms as legislators, it's very tempting, Right. To, to say and do things that those algorithms are going to organically push your reach. And I know that, you know, everyone of all political stripe is guilty of doing this. And so I think, you know, you, I, I really think it's worthwhile. I think you and I and others, you know, open invitation. I hope we could get together and have a brown bag lunch and say, how can we, how can we address this? But to start, we have to realize that managing to clicks and likes on Facebook is part of the problem here. Right. You know, I've seen that in my own, you know, I'll take accountability for my own presence online. And I've really been trying to to to, to think about the information that I've been putting on Twitter and Facebook in a much more purposeful way 
so that I am not managing the clicks and likes. I'm managing to the best interest of my constituents. And, you know, I would just encourage people who are on, like everybody's on social media to understand that they are being manipulated. Everybody is being manipulated with the information that they're being presented in order, in a, in a way that actually calcifies beliefs and, and actually impedes them from using critical thinking. And, you know, maybe that's a start for parliament is, is an educational piece. I don't know, but it's something we should be talking about. Well, it's interesting because in your article, you did highlight that these platforms reward certain kinds of user behavior and, and deepen personal biases. You also said that bots and trolls propagating the particular Great Reset conspiracy probably made the temptation to comment on it too great for those in politics who are seeking popularity and seeking standing. You did a, an interview recently, though, with a colleague of mine, Yasser Nakfi, and with Charlie Angus. And when you were asked about regulation, you said, can we actually regulate this? My gut instinct is no. And so on the one hand, we should call on one another to be more responsible. And, and I take the point you've made to be more reflective of our own behavior online. I think it's a really important one. When we look at regulation, do you think we can manage these competing considerations of addressing disinformation while also respecting free speech? I don't know. What do you think? Like, I'm torn on this one. I I, I just don't know how government, you know, you, you, we're, we're, you get to this point where it's we're getting dangerously close to the ministry of truth. Right. And I mean, again, I. I'm sitting in the opposition benches, so I'll bring this up. I, you know, we, we see the use of the Emergencies Act. There's, you know, the suing the Speaker of the House over release of documents. Like th- there are things that the current government has not done a lot, I feel, and you can push back on me, to to instill trust in Canadians that democracy is working. And then you you kind of need to have that consensus in the public before you try to regulate something like this, because it actually is a proof point for people that are trying to say that the government is stifling. And I I would have big concerns about, in fact, I would vehemently oppose the government sort of saying what is, what is right is what is wrong, but maybe, you know, maybe the approach like I don't actually think we've studied this in parliament in any substantive way, but like for the public to understand how they're being manipulated, right? Like some sort of transparency mechanism. I've heard other journalists talk about this on how the algorithms work. Like they're very opaque right now. So the public understands. And I, you know, on that interview, I talked about maybe we do something where it's like, you don't have to necessarily disclose your identity online when you're posting content, you know, you could have an avatar, or a, a different handle, but to post content on some of these big platforms you would have to um, have your identity verified with the platform first so that, you know, let's say, you know, you, Nate, you have 5,000 accounts, right? The one that you're posting off of, it would have a stamp of like 459 out of 5,000. So people would understand if it's bought or not. So I don't know, but what do you think? Like in terms of productive ways for us as parliamentarians to sort of take our partisan hat off and say, this is a, a foundational issue we need to address. What do you think we could do? Hmm asking me questions. Sorry. So I want to fix this, right? Like I have thought a lot about this because I worked with Charlie Angus and Bob Zimmer and Peter Kent on the ethics committee before it really went sideways and became about the we charity scandal in the 2015 and 2019 session. We did have some bumps along the road and we got through them, but mainly we were focused on accountability of social media platforms. We went down this rabbit hole of Cambridge Analytica and there was a Canadian player involved in that. And so we really put a lot of thought into disinformation and misinformation online. And out of that, I became involved in this international grand committee. I would say, first, there's a standards council approach that I think is a really easy win that would be helpful. And this wouldn't cure all. But when we have this broadcasting standards council that has existed for many years and brings together the broadcasters, brings together effectively a conversation about best practices, I think if we'd done that 10 years ago, it would have been a very helpful thing for social media platforms to share best practices. They all are internally managing these challenging conversations and a more explicit, transparent conversation among one another, including with civil society actors that are impacted by misinformation, I think would have been helpful many years ago. It still probably would be helpful. Where we're at today, I'm quite interested in the European Union is ahead of us on privacy rules. Yes. Now they're getting out ahead of us on algorithmic accountability and what their new digital services act would do, which I find quite appealing. It basically says to very large platforms. So there's a threshold question of what that amounts to, but a a very large platform, say YouTube, Facebook, 
they will have to do a risk assessment, including sort of an algorithmic impact assessment. They will have to do that assessment with a few particular issues in mind, including the promotion of illegal content. So we're not talking about new content standards, but just policing existing content standards. And two, and this I guess to the gets to the bot problem, the intentional manipulation of platforms through automation. And in providing that risk assessment, then they, the second part of the, the legislation would require those platforms to take some re- remedial action to address those risks. And then there's an independent audit aspect to the to the regulations. And so I think that kind of algorithmic impact assessment, that, that idea of risk assessments and transparency in the course of those, those risk assessments, we require financial institutions to be quite, you know, take regular yeah. quite seriously around these kinds of risk assessments. And I think given the scale of information collection, personal information collection, given the scale of reach that these companies have, I think that that as a starting point would be a useful conversation for us to have in Parliament and to catch up in some ways to where the EU is and, and is going to be. Yeah, I guess a couple of points on that. You know, a question I don't really think we've asked ourselves at Canada is with the Canada-Europe trade agreement, do we have any duties to actually promulgate European legislation like the GDPR? And what are our obligations under that? And, and as the EU is considering new regs, um, how does it impact us? But I guess the practical, like to, to drive it home for somebody who might not think it impacts you, propaganda, war propaganda, is, is something that's really real today when we're looking at Putin's invasion of Ukraine. But propaganda, I think people think about propaganda as, you know, pamphlets being dropped from the sky during World War II. We've, we've, we've been subject to propaganda in our lifetimes right now through elections, through, um, you know, state actors having influence in our elections here in Canada. And we're seeing the results of propaganda materially in, in this invasion. And, and I think that I just want to drive the point home that you made that we're long past due and having this conversation. You and I might have differences on how to implement, but at, but at the end of the day, um, this is such a this has such a societal impact that we're just I think that as parliamentarians we're abdicating our responsibility if we're not looking at what the public interest is here in a more significant way. I, I totally agree with you, and I you know I just I would offer this like Nate, I really think you know you're a leader in your caucus. I, I think that we should be getting folks together and just say like, look, Chatham House rules, take our partisan hat at the door. What are the objectives? Is there operating procedures we can hold ourselves to as parliamentarians, you know, because we have to fix this. Well, that's really why do. I invited you on the podcast. Yay! <laughs> but the, the only thing I would, I would add in relation to, and this gets to the free speech conundrum in some ways, but because it's not just a domestic free speech issue, right? And it's actually a challenge to your prescription of a solution around addressing anonymity is it's very appealing but there are challenges when you take a step outside of the Canadian context absolutely we could apply rules around speech in Canada and you and I will disagree potentially maybe not though around the parameters of, of those speech rules but we ought to be very careful about what rules we apply to platforms in the Canadian context if we then see other countries very authoritarian countries that would look to those rules and say, well, if Canada does it this way, we're going to do it, but we're just going to apply the lens of harmful content differently. And so we have to be very careful about the rules that we apply totally. that they might be used elsewhere. The same goes for rules around anonymity. Do I want anonymity online and get attacked and you to get attacked and people to be deplatformed because of attacks from trolls and anonymous people? No, not at all. I want that addressed. But do I want people to be able to be voices against governments in other countries. Totally agree. No, so I, I agree. And, and again, like I, I totally agree with you from the perspective of anonymity does allow for whistleblowers, et cetera, or, or people who might feel threatened about talking about something to have a platform. And, and I agree, we have to protect uh, that sort of fundamental right that, that is underpins our democracy. I think what I'm driving at with the anonymity component is it's really easy to think that somebody that you're or something that you're interacting with online is a real person when in a lot of instances, particularly on Twitter, yeah. um, Facebook comments, they're not. Exactly. And so even like, I agree with you, maybe it's not a identity verified thing. I would never want to, and I would fight vigorously against any sort of, you know, anything that remotely sniffed like a social credit system or something, but even information that would just be like, this account is not verified. Right. Like this account is not 
we don't know if this is a real person or not, because I think that perception is reality. And I, I don't know, I've seen, I've seen even colleagues of mine get into full on arguments and platform. I'm like, this account is not real. Like, why are you doing this? This is not a good thing. So I don't know. There's, there's a lot of love to it otherwise too, with respect to investments in local journalism initiatives, with respect to addressing transparency specifically around the content that reaches the most eyeballs, making sure there's great transparency there because of the studies that have been done in this context, it's a relatively small number of accounts that are really promoting disinformation to a huge number of eyeballs. And it's a surprisingly small number of accounts when, when you get down to it. And so their sort of super spreader accountability is, is, is how some experts frame it. So I think there's a lot, there's a, there's been a huge swath of work done by experts in this space. And then it would come to you, myself, others who cross party lines to sift through that, these expert recommendations and say, what works for all of us? What can we move forward with? I, can I add something there? You have to get the public on board, right? I think any effort to, to address this issue has to be done in lockstep with public consultation, because I just, I think that the, the trust environment in Canada is so low right now. And, and, and in some instances, rightly so, right? So particularly after, you know, I, I do think that we, we are a weary nation after, you know, two years of restrictions and, you know, life just starting to get back to normal now. So, you know, I, I think that that has to be a key element of, of any of this effort as we go forward. Can I tell you a story that, that I think symbolizes the brokenness? How, how This has not happened to me in the six and a half years I've been doing it until it happened to me this past weekend. This is, I have, I'm not going to write an article about this, but I'll tell you the story. So this weekend, I, we, we were nearing the tail end of COVID in our household. So we weren't going out and interacting with anyone, but we went and got sort of the click and collect groceries. And I went with my five-year-old and did the click and collect. And then my five-year-old has, is a new member of the Toronto Public Library and he's very ecstatic about it. So he's got this big stack of books and he and I were taking the books back. We weren't going to go inside. We were going through the slot. And so we pull up in this alleyway beside the main street library branch and we've got our bundle of books and there's a woman probably in her early 50s I don't know she's well put together she's got this little red car and she's parked in front of us and she's going to the slot before us and we smile at one another as she's coming back to her car and we're going towards the slot and then all I hear behind me is oh it's you how do you feel about the government these days that you crossed over to? And I, honestly, I didn't know what she meant by crossed over to, because I've always been part of the liberal caucus, but some people maybe don't think that and they don't know that. So I turned quizzically and I was like, what do you mean? And she looked at me and she went Heil. And she did the Heil Hitler salute at me. And I didn't know, I put the books in the slot and then I was just furious inside with my five-year-old. What am I going to do? And I look back and I like point at the car and then I, it's not one of my finer moments. I definitely gave her the finger and she drove away. She's not going to vote for me, obviously, but that should not happen. I maybe should not have reacted the way. I don't know, but no one should be giving the Heil Hitler salute. I don't know. Ever. What the fuck is happening here? No, and, no. It's like, you know what? And this is where we're at. This is a, she's a member of the fucking library branch. She's a neighbor I know, of I, probably. I, look, I, I don't know what to think. I struggle with this, right? Because there is, I remember, no, 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 it's, it's good, it's good, it's, I'm, swearing like, I, I'm a member of the opposition, right, so my job, and, and technically your job, is to hold the government to account, right, so, you know, I do want to raise issues about the health of Canadian democracy, or the tone of public discourse on issues like vaccine mandates coming out of the government, etc., but I find, like, just to kind of dig into what you said, it's like, there's no room for nuance, is what I'm saying, it's either like Heil Hitler salute or nothing. And like, that's what worries me. And, and I think I, there's this line where it's like, you have to call out that behavior. That's completely unacceptable. At the same time, it's also, we have to talk about, like there, there are many frustrated people in Canada. Um, we're, we're deeply divided. People have been you know, separated from social situations for over two years, and we need to heal. So, you know, this is, it's, it, oh, we got a lot of work to do. I'm sorry that happened to you, you know? 
I agree with that. And I agree with the that push for a middle reasonable ground. Your colleague, yeah. Eric uh, Melillo, he gave a speech in the House on the Emergencies Act. I'd given a speech to say something about polarization, but also to try to hold the government to account, saying I didn't think that these measures were necessary and proportionate on a going forward basis. I was skeptical about the threshold and and expressed some reservations and concerns and criticisms. He gave a speech critical of the government, but also then to say, but the prime minister is not a tyrant. He's not a dictator. We, we should not use these words. We shouldn't use the word, the language of treason. And, and there is a way to be really critical and, and seriously and thoughtfully critical. And, and I think to win the argument without descending into that. And if we platform that, then we're really playing a dangerous game. Eric's a beauty, I have to say. No, and it's like, look, I there's this politicalism. I think it's Thatcher, actually. It's like, if you stand in the middle of the road, you're going to get hit by traffic on both sides, basically saying like, you know, don't be a centrist if you're a conservative. Yeah. But for me, it's like, I would actually rather get hit by traffic on both sides and, and try to carve a middle lane out on certain issues. Like, and, and I'm not saying like from a, like a, a political spectrum issue, it's just trying to have a space where we can say, look, there are many people in Canada who are frustrated with vaccine mandates. They are frustrated. Let's talk about those frustrations. Maybe we could have a conversation about ways to address vaccine hesitancy without calling people names. Yeah, exactly. But at the same time, we don't have to blockade public infrastructure illegally to do that, right? So me making that comment right there, I'm sure is just going to get me by all sides. It makes everybody <laughs> mad, but I'm for, like, there's no clean political hit in there. But, you know, I think, Nate, honestly, Nate, I think about times of crisis in the world where politicians, you know, you have to put aside even are you going to get reelected because you're you're elected. We are elected in this moment to lead, you know, like if Churchill had thought about his next term. The, the war might have been different, right? He just did what it took. And I, I I think that we are in one of these moments. I don't want to be overly dramatic, but we are on a precipice here. I really think that, Nate. And I would rather stand for a type of discourse that is good and true as opposed to try to manage to click some likes and make things worse. Yeah, and if we were having a thoughtful conversation on mandates, it would be a conversation around is this a two-dose vaccine or is it a three-dose vaccine? If it's a three-dose vaccine, then if we're talking about mandates to increase rates, by the way, the third doses, you know, rate in Canada is quite low in comparison to two-dose rate, but let's make sure we accommodate people via rapid tests or otherwise. Like, I, I don't think we've had that conversation about accommodation, which takes me to a place because when you talk about people who are hit by traffic because they're standing in the middle, that was Aaron O'Toole. He got hit by traffic. Yeah. By us, he got hit by traffic by folks in the conservative caucus. He was also someone who was calling for more accommodation in what, in retrospect, I, I think he was probably right to say we need greater accommodation via rapid tests and, and we need to try and take some of the, the heat out of this and, the, and, and, and to try and bring people together as much as we reasonably can while emphasizing the importance of vaccination. Now, we would disagree. I think mandates are really important with accommodation. There is at least a reasonable conversation, I think, to be had with Aaron, and, and I quite like Aaron. He's no longer there. And I think when you talk about the importance of this moment, the importance of this moment in some ways, can the Conservative Party hold the center? And you've written, I think, a very reasonable op-ed, but I'm biased in support of electoral reform. Do you think without electoral reform, the Conservative Party can hold the center? Or are we going to see a continued capture of the party by a small number of voters that sign up, members that sign up in a nomination and then capture what is really supposed to be a big tent party in this country? I think it's a really good question. It's one that I hope is addressed through our leadership race. You know, I remain ever optimistic. I, you know, the reason why I broached the issue of electoral reform is we are such a regionally diverse country. You know, even I'm, I'm sure liberalism in Alberta here in Calgary looks different than it might in your riding, right? Or conservatism looks different in downtown Vancouver as it does, you know, in in the Quebec City area, right? So I just I I, I think that we have have to have some sort of conversation about this. 
I wrote the article particularly in the context of you know a lot of people in Alberta and this is it's not like a political stripe issue it's just we've, we we don't feel represented in Ottawa from the perspective of equal weight in the house representation in the public service uh capacity to lobby right we're far away so i i i think that you know we're we're pushing 200 as uh, an age of a since confederation right maybe it's time we talk about these things um and, and maybe electoral reform isn't the way i don't know but we have to be talking about how we get parliament or or whatever our de- democracy 2.0 looks like in canada back to a point where we are standing in conviction like standing in conviction on issues but also being open to consensus and i i'm not i don't know i mean if this is something i have and I will continue to weigh in on, particularly during our leadership race. I've never shied away from saying spicy things, but we have to. We have to talk about these things. Um, otherwise, I do think we're going to lose the plot from with Canadians, and they're going to go, "What do you guys do? Why, why do I pay your salary?" Right? Well, electoral reform is a really interesting way into that conversation. When I was reading your op-ed, I was nodding in my head the whole time, saying, "I would vote for her." <laughs> this, this sounds great, and for different reasons. You obviously come at it from a yeah. Uh, defense of your region and a strong defense of your region. I worry that the current first past the post system, while two things, one, it's a big tent system and in theory that softens the edges and that avoids some of the divisiveness that, that we might see. But I, instead what we end up seeing is we don't get Maxime Bernier in parliament, but we do get him a handful of votes away from becoming the leader of a big tent party. And it's the same problem south of the border. Donald Trump obviously was president of the United States because he was able to capture one of the two governing parties through a a primary that allowed him to take over a party with a relatively small number of votes, all things considered, in in the in the course of that primary. And in the Canadian context, if you had electoral reform, yes, you would get a Bernier in parliament, but that Bernier would stand no chance of taking over a sensible conservative party that would have a, a chance of forming government and, and being the government. Similarly, you talk about regional divides and, I, and it does exacerbate our current system exacerbates regional divides right now. Conservative members of my community might occasionally like when I vote differently from the government and push back on the government, I get those positive emails, but generally speaking, they don't have representation in the same way in Toronto when we've got 24 liberal MPs and then one independent, but, functionally 25 liberal MPs if Adam Vaughn were still in parliament. And, and so you don't have the representation regionally here for conservatives. You don't have the representation regionally. There are liberals in, in Calgary, like you don't have the representation in the same way. And so it, it exacerbates those regional divides. I think, unfortunately, do you have a sense of, have you gone down the, in, into the details and weeds of, of different systems? Because there's one particular system that is ranked ballot, but it is multi-member districts that does two things, which I think get to the point you were driving at. One, it would allow for a conservative to be elected here in Toronto, unquestionably, and allow for that representation. It would allow liberal to be more liberals to be elected at West as well and allow for that representation. But two, it allows for more independents to win. And I think that is also a wonderful thing because when you wrote that article, you also called out the current political system's contribution to centralization of power in political party leadership, which I think has been a challenge. And I think it's a huge challenge. You know, I, uh, having, having the ability to constructively dissent with the opinion of any sort of leadership, be it in politics or in the business world, whatever, it's a healthy thing, right? Saying like, why are we doing this? Is this the best way? I don't agree with this. This is, uh, maybe we should do this. Oh, you don't want to do this? Well, I'm still going to vote this way, Right. I I think that's healthy. Um, I think that a lot of the frustration you might feel or others might feel with your party or I might feel or others might feel with my party comes from this like rigid centralization of power that really stifles debate. And, you know, perhaps electoral reform, to your point, would allow for that rigidity, which is not in the best interest of any Canadian, to be dismantled. Um, now, I mean, some of this is just courage as well, too. You speak out when against your party from time to time. You vote against your party from time to time. I do the same thing, right? But I think like that shouldn't be seen as disloyalty or it, it's just more like, well, 
that's actually a normal part of parliament, right? So there's to also like push back on my own position. I wonder how much of this is just, you know, our own lack of courage or our internal parties primary systems, you, you know, you alluded to how we select candidates and how we select leaders. Our, our party's primary processes have something to has, have something to do with this as well, too. And perhaps the reform starts there. But I think we have to we have to talk about this, which is why I raised it. Uh, and I actually have surprisingly had a lot of positive feedback, quiet positive feedback from folks, uh, members of my caucus saying, oh, I'm really glad you raised this. Interesting. So uh, because time, life has changed. Even in the last, you know, six, seven years, we've gone through a lot. And uh, I think it's healthy for us to talk about the best ways to keep our democracy alive well and with the public believing that it's it's functioning. Are you getting involved in an active way in the coming leadership race? I will be this time. I've never done it before. So stay tuned. Interesting. Well, I... I've got my, I've got my guesses. You've got the scoop. I've got, I've got my guesses, but I mean, uh, I'm, I'm reasonably certain where you will land, but I, but good luck in all of that. And thanks. Will that take you away from your legislative issues? There are a few that I wanted to touch on here, but one you've, but you, you have introduced one recently on crypto and walk me through C249. One, how it came about. How did you get involved in this world? And two, what is it you want to accomplish? Okay, so this is actually going to be my pitch to you to vote for my bill in front of your I'm, listeners. I'm listening. Okay. So, so this this bill relates to putting together a, a national framework regarding the crypto asset sector, and you know, crypto assets are very it's a very very broadly defined field, not just limited to cryptocurrencies, but you know you're talking about non fungible tokens. A, bu- a bunch of other things as well, too, right? This has been an issue that has been on my radar for several years, um, both from you know hearing from colleagues in provincial governments that are looking at strategies uh, to to grow the sector to make Canada um, attractive, but also to make sure that those who are participating in the sector are are protected, right? But at the same time, not doing anything that is going to stifle innovation to the point where Canada becomes non-competitive. It's a very finely balanced area. Um, and the thing that I've heard from both end users, innovators, provincial governments, whatever, is that there's really no consensus on what that framework should look at look like outside of the fact that people who are innovators and end users in the community need to be at the table for those discussions so that they're not happening behind closed doors in government. And why? Because I, and I think you'd agree with me on this. Most people in government have no idea what we're talking about at all. Never mind having the ability to regulate it or put together a framework or whatever, right? Like I really do feel like innovators need to be uh, have a, have the key voice in this and in informing our, our deliberations. So the, the goal with this, this bill, like it's, I, I am hoping that it is viewed as completely nonpartisan. It just, it's calling for a framework and it's calling for public consultation. I, I, there's nothing prescriptive in there in terms of what it has to do. And I'm hoping that we can get it to the committee stage, to the finance committee, so that people can come in and talk about this like, oh, well, you know, we need regs or we don't need regs or this is the role of the federal government or this isn't the role of the federal government or this is the role of the provinces or just just so that we've never had a discussion about this in parliament. And my, my thought is let's, let's do that in a constructive way. And I'll I'll just close with this. Um, I've watched discussions like legislative discussions on crypto assets, particularly in the U S it's starting to devolve into very partisan politics where like the industry itself is becoming partisan. And that really scares me um, because the, the last debate that we've had on this issue, like in a similar way is the energy sector, right? Where the, the sector itself has become a partisan issue. Yeah. And I think that that's precluded us from coming up with good public policy. So what if we could just skip that step <laughs> and try to at least figure out like, like, what if we could as, as parliamentarians agree, like, look, we're going to have different ideas on what the actual prescriptive policy should be, but let's agree that we should be driving towards a framework and put that in the hands of the government, the federal government to act as a convener with input from the provincial governments. So, you know, and if, if we had a Bloc Québécois member on, on today, I would point out that the bill itself is very clear that this is 
like provincial autonomy remains, that provinces essentially have the ability to opt into anything that is being put together. But I've been very happy with the response I've received from kind of like everybody involved in the, like the community, like, oh, this makes sense. Or maybe we'll tweak this when we come to committee. But Nate, you heard it here first. I am open to amendments. <laughs> you tell me what you want in that speech. But I, I just think we need, to, we need to be driving this. I think it'd be really cool. It w- we would be doing something that resembles work in parliament. Well, I'm very sympathetic to send bills to committee. And I think yeah. vote bills down far too often at second reading. Yeah. I think we do our, we do parliament a disservice when, when we do that. And we, we basically, again, it comes back to the culture of parliament, but we tell our party leadership, oh yeah, of course you've analyzed the bill. Why would I need to analyze the bill? We'll vote it down at second reading. You know, And it's, a, I think, really unfortunate. We also should use legislation like this as an opportunity to bring expert testimony to yes. that committee. So the only question I have yeah. is being prescriptive, because I don't know the answer to this question, but there's one prescriptive element to the bill that is taking a position one way or the other in relation to the crypto asset sector. The, the legislation is to, one of the purpose of it in some ways, is to encourage the growth of the crypto asset sector. Why do I want to encourage the growth of the crypto asset sector? I'm fully supportive of sending it to committee, bringing experts in to testify. I saw a Queens Business School professor in the media saying, this is past time for us to have a conversation. This gets the conversation going. That makes eminent sense to me. Why do I want, though, to encourage the growth of this particular sector? Well, first of all, because it's an opportunity for Canada to be a leader in job creation and non-natural resource-based jobs in intangibles, right? Like uh, the type of innovation. And it's like, you've got to think about crypto assets as it's not just Bitcoin, right? It's For example, um, looking at ways for real estate transactions to happen that are more transparent and give more 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 power to a you know a landowner, let's say in a in a a country where their 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 government might not have a landowner's best interest at heart, right? To ways of of communicating information, or like there's like the the actual applications of crypto assets are so immense that it's it's a disruptive fundamentally disruptive force and industry that we would like it's happening it's going to happen we should be the place where it is happening so that canadians are deriving benefit from it right like there's so much investment happening on this around the world and in any industry there's going to be you know applications that are very positive and perhaps those that aren't so much right but i have faith in both as a conservative, the market, and as well as in legislators to to find that that balance. And that's what I was trying to get at with 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 that particular language in the in the legislation. You know, when you think about Trudeau going to, you know, someplace around where you're at in Toronto, um, they they always your government always wants to be announcing, you know, that the next big, big tech hub thing. Well, here you go. This is it. Right. <laughs> like. So, so, like, I guess what I'm trying to say is, it's it, to me when you say that to me, kind of what I, like what I hear is like, like if we were teleported back to the early 1970s, and you were like, so tell me why we should grow, grow these computers that you're talking about, <laughs> like, right? So, like, do you do you know what I mean? Like, I actually when you no, your answer is a good one in terms of making the distinction as between Bitcoin and blockchain, right? Because yeah, there are many applications for blockchain and how do we encourage a growth in that sector when there are many applications in, in terms of supply chain resiliency and more? And there yes. even being a number of pilot projects via ICED, although I, I don't know the status of them or if they've been effective in any way, but th- there has been in fits and starts a conversation around this. What your legislation could potentially do is force a, a much broader and permanent framework for yeah. the asset class. So. Look, I generally support bills at second. You can ask for amendments, Nate. <laughs> I'm just saying that's how we work. Right? We also have an indispensable colleague in Adam Chambers at the Finance Committee. So you have you have people who this would ultimately be studied uh, by who are reasonable on all sides of the house. I think at the yeah. So um, yeah. Can I also ask? So I don't know. This was again an Aaron O'Toole conversation in some ways because he was the leader when this happened, but it was your doing that made this happen. I'm reasonably certain. But in this past election, for the first time in Canadian history, we had the two major parties come out with promises around animal welcare. And it helped convene a liberal 
caucus effort of over 20 of us calling for certain promises to be in our platform that were mostly realized, not entirely, but mostly realized. And Aaron Tool came out with one day, he even dedicated, I didn't, I didn't even see the prime minister dedicate any airtime to the promises in our platform, but Aaron Tool dedicated time in the election to animal welfare. That was you, right? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> okay, 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 okay. No, I, it's so important. I, you know, I, cause I, I think one of the first times you and I ever interacted was on the, your first private members bill. Right. And that would have been what, 2016. And I remember, why I'm so biased to get bills to committee. Cause that one did not get to committee. <laughs> but I, but you, you know what I loved about your bill was, so I voted for it. I was like one of the, it was only me and Len, Weber, Len I think on the conservative that voted for it. But you actually did something really cool, which you you, you you put forward this very comprehensive bill and you're like, OK, there's a lot in here. Uh, and then you went and talked to people you like from all political parties. You're like, OK, like, OK, maybe this is an overreach. Maybe we could maybe this let's scale this back or let's add this instead. And you actually amended your bill like you you got that done and tried. I, I made a mistake that, in some ways. I was too naive. I would still do it probably the same way in some respects, but. I did go before I even introduced it to a couple of conservative members in good faith to say, this is what I'm trying to do. Can we work together? And I didn't have, I wasn't, I was not known at that time as someone to work across the aisle with. No one knew who I was. I was very new. I think if I did that same thing today, I would get a more honest engagement from someone on the conservative side. Whereas like the two members in particular, just like burned me to the ground. It wasn't me, right? It wasn't you. It was naming names is Bob Soak and Blaine Calkins. And one's not there and the other's unfortunately still there. Although yeah. I like, I like, I see, I still even have a soft spot for Blaine, even though he completely burned me. Yeah, but, he's great. But uh, great's a strong word, but you know, he, uh, in retrospect, I probably should not have gone to them and say, Hey, let's work together. Here's what I plan to do. Cause then they just like immediately yeah. circled back with organizations and then they were like ready to hammer me. Right from you know what? Show. I'm going to completely disagree with you on this. Like you can't look at parliamentary work if you're looking at parliamentary work as like a win that you get in three months or even yeah, six yeah. months, it like the, the timeline that it takes to, to move the needle on most public policy issues, particularly ones like this or crypto or whatever, it's more like a decade, unfortunately. Right. So let me give you my analysis of what happened there and why it was good and why you should have, if you went back in time, you should do it again, going to animal welfare associations at that time. Like, I don't think like, you know, you think about beef producers or, you know, hunting and angling associations, they had never really been brought into the conversation in a meaningful way, but then they were, and we've been able to get some wins in parliament over Mm -hmm. the last few years. And we've actually started a conversation where, you know, we're, we're, we're not necessarily like this, this, this falsehood that we can put additional rights around animal welfare, uh, protection around animal welfare doesn't necessarily mean that we're shutting down agriculture in Canada or shutting down hunting. Right. But like, you've actually, you've actually moved the conversation forward with that. And I think your bill was a seminal piece in that and talking to people works, but it's been, you know, it's been a lot of work for you. And so as much as you were like, was it you? I'm like, well, it was also you. Right. And uh, you're the scary vegan from Toronto. (laughs) Yes. And I'm the like, you know, gun-toting uh, beef lover from Calgary. So, and we're agreeing on al- animal welfare. It's like, what is happening? Like, oh my God. Well, but, but it speaks to the importance of this issue. And this is what I always try and emphasize, and I maybe don't do it enough, but it really is not a partisan conversation when you speak to Canadian voters. That Canadian conservatives, people in my riding who would never in their lifetime vote liberal would consider voting for me on this issue and this issue alone, even though they're they're very conservative yeah. in their views. And it really cuts across the political spectrum in a serious way. I think so too. And you know, how we how is a society treats animals is I think reflective of the health and justice justness of a society overall. So well that is very well put. I would vote for you on that basis alone. And <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, the last issue I guess I want to speak uh, speak to about was another article that you wrote recently, and it was in relation to the ability for women to speak out about harassment allegations. Mm. And I have to tell you, I, I have the privileged life of being uh, a white man, and on Parliament Hill, that privilege exists particularly as a man and it's changing and changed in its own way, but 
when I speak to staffers, I, I, I have to tell you, like it was shocking to learn. It shouldn't be shocking to learn this, but it was shocking for me to learn this, that there's this whisper network on Parliament Hill and staffers know by the acronym of names or other monikers who to avoid and who not to be alone with. And that that is horrifying to think that that needs to exist and that it does exist as a result out of necessity. And, and yet you have a moment in time that you wrote about where there were allegations and the way it was reported on has made it even more difficult for people to come forward now. Do you, I don't even know what the right question is on an issue like this, frankly, because it's something that we shouldn't continue to have to talk about. Um, I guess I would start with a note of optimism. Like I I do think that talking about this issue, particularly in the context of Parliament Hill, having at least some process, like we now have, you know, some HR process to deal with this, right? There wasn't like nothing, even two years ago, there was nothing, right? So if something happened, it was, what do you do, right? So, so we now have some process. I'm not convinced the process works because it still has ties into political party whips, right? And the propensity of a party whip is to make a problem go away, not to seek justice, right? And I, I would say that you and I and others have to make it unsafe for people within our own parties to, to brush things under the rug. Like, I think I have a pretty good reputation in my party. My party knows that if I get wind of something like this, I'm going to go public with it and I'm going to call it out because I don't want my party to be a safe place or for this type of action. And, and I have seen change in my party. You know, we've got procedures, et cetera, around this now. And I think that my caucus has a, like the the culture is much different in our caucus than when I first started. Um, You know, I'd ask you to do the same. It's really easy to criticize the other side. It's a lot harder to criticize your own. Um, it comes at a cost, and I've sure paid that cost big time. I paid that cost a lot. I wouldn't change anything. Um, you know, my hope, I look at, you know, there's some younger women in our caucus now. I think of, you know, like Raquel Dancho. She's just a spitfire. My hope is that if I've done my job right, she doesn't have to go through this bullshit, the same bullshit that I did as a 30-year-old woman entering on the Hill. And it was, it was pretty fucking bad. <laughs> um, or that some of the other you know, others that we know about have had to go through. Um, but it, it just has to be a zero tolerance policy, even up our own food chains. Yeah, I agree with that. And on that note about sort of sacrifice and consequences because of the willingness to hold others accountable, you don't have a critic role at the moment. It's bizarre to me. You're one of the most high profile conservatives in this country. And, you know, I was going to ask you, I read in your Wikipedia, Ronna Ambrose spoke to you and encouraged you to run. And if Candace Bergen had given you a similar speech, would you be an MP today? And you don't have to answer that. But when I, when it comes to your role going forward, at some point, do you, do you keep doing what you're doing in the course of the party and, and making a difference in your own way and saying, I'm going to, you know, speak truth to power as you see fit and consequences be damned. Or at some point you say, I'm not seeing the change I want to see and I'm seeing things in some ways move backwards and I, I'm going to go make a difference in some other way. Like, do you, I, I'm, I guess I ask you this because I'm struggling with this question myself at times. Is this something that mm-hmm. I continue with? And, and, you know, there are consequences, you know, people ask, well, don't you want to be a minister and don't you want to be a parliamentary secretary? And not if it means that I sacrifice a certain aspect of who I am in the course of doing that. No. And not if it means, changing the way I act as a parliamentarian. And so do you struggle with that same question of, am I making the difference? Is this the, will this forever be the way that I'm, I'm going to make the difference? And is I don't struggle with that question, but I struggle with the cost someday. Sure. I, when I sought my nomination, um, you know, there's a couple of people who have been with me through this entire process since day one and two rules. There are two unbreakable rules. Number one, never screw over the people who got you to where you are. Number two, never uh, ignore home base, never ignore the people that elected you. And I feel like kind of when you keep those, those two rules at the front of your activities as a member of parliament and you don't treat it just like a paycheck, like you don't look at getting reelected as like, I need this, I need this job, I need this yeah. money. I think I, I, you can do anything. You can, you can make a difference. And you've done this. Like you have, you know, you've never had a, 
role, quote unquote, a title, but you've 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 changed your party, you've changed legislation, um, you've made an impact for your community. And I look at it the same way. I, you know, I, I you can't put baby in a corner, Nate. <laughs> and I uh, I would just I would just say this. Um, I, I I do try to work with my team. I don't think you have to fight your team all the time, but I also don't shy away from, I, I don't, I also don't shy away for standing up for when I believe that the principles my party are founded on aren't, are being violated. And um, uh, so, so yeah, like, you know, do you pay a personal cost for that? Sure. Like, you know, I, I'll give you a good Alberta, Albertaism. It's, you know, you get bucked off the bull, right. And, you got to get the wind knocked out of you and you got to brush yourself off and get back up. But we get paid to be resilient and to not get emotionally hurt when petty jealousies or, um, you know, irritations are come our way to, to try and silence us. We're, we're paid to fight and we're paid to actually do work. And I've, I've been, I've seen it all now and uh, no one's been able to silence me before and uh, certainly won't be able to do that going forward. Well, it, there are frustrating moments in the course of the Emergencies Act debate. I had, I probably bothered everyone in the course of it because on the one hand I had liberals in my writing, not, not too many, thankfully, but some saying, are you even a liberal? And because I criticized and then I had other. 30 tests are bullshit though, right? Like you course, ran as a liberal, course. so you're a liberal, right? Like. Like I'm bullshit to purity tests. They're moving goalposts that never, you can never meet them. It's, do I, you know, do I use the founding principles and guidelines and, and, and mandate and platform that my party ran on as a guideline for how I comport myself in my legislative duties? And the answer is yes. And I, I know the answer is yes for you. The lens you overlay that with is what is in the best interest of my constituency, right? And if those two things are ever at odds, those two things are ever at odds, you always default to the best interest of the people you represent. And if you do that, you're fine. And I've watched you. You've been pretty consistent on that. So I try to be, although on this one, it was tough because then they made it a confidence vote. And so, (laughs) and so, right, there's that. And I had this commitment that I made to constituents and Canadians in 2015 that I would vote independently where I saw fit, except around confidence matters and platform promise. Yeah. And obviously this did not amount, you know, I, I, I think you would think differently, but I think this government should still be in government. And I think the Ukraine, I don't, but you don't. And that's a love. Yeah. But, but this vote did not amount to non-confidence in my view. In, in any event, I then had other people writing to me from the other perspective to say, we like what you said, but then you just voted to keep your job. It bothered me so much because I thought I don't see my family as much. I'm making uh, a large sum of money less than I otherwise could. And it's all to make a difference. And no, it's the opposite. What you just said, in no way do I make decisions to win the next election, because I don't think one should make decisions in that regard. And it's this line. I don't know if you're a Kurt Vonnegut fan, but there's this line we are who we pretend to be. So be careful who we, we should be careful who we pretend to be. And I think in politics, we all ought to remember that more than we do sometimes. So we're not perfect, right? Like, I mean, we're, we're just not, we're, we're all humans and we, we all just have to try to do our best. And, you know, I, I, my, I'm proud of a lot of the work that my party's done. I'm a proud of the work that, uh, you know, we've, we've done to hold the government to account and, and I love my team, but, you know, again, going back to that, like, constructive dis- dissent in in the caucus room or you know in you know well done articles or whatever that that's that doesn't equal disloyalty or it doesn't equal like it doesn't say that you've changed who you are as a political being um so i i don't know i um well and, and that's a good point because you've used your platform you mentioned articles i i think that's right because we have fake credibility in our roles and it's how we use that standing and that credibility by virtue of having a member of parliament behind our name. And I think by virtue of being out there writing, writing in iPolitics recently on har- harassment and the ability of women to come forward and the challenges of media reporting to making that happen. You wrote recently on electoral reform. You wrote recently on the World Economic Forum. And I think you are usefully using your voice to advance ideas outside of parliament, in parliament, of course, but also outside of parliament to add ideas constructively to the public debate. And I, I think that's a really useful way, not, not enough 
parliamentarians, I think, write op-eds in that way and use their voice in that way. So to bring it full circle to the World Economic Forum article where we started, good on you for writing those articles. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. I'll go back to standing in the middle and getting hit by traffic. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I... Thanks uh, for having me. Yeah. I I promise I won't drive too close to you. And... um, yeah, I, I look forward to continuing working together. I know we you know we've had an opportunity to work together every once in a while and few and far between uh, in some ways, but I you know there are enough files I think that we'll have an opportunity to work together on going forward. And yeah, thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Uncommons. Upcoming guests include NDP MP Charlie Angus on disinformation and former BC Greens leader Andrew Weaver on the state of Canada's climate action plans. As always, please drop whatever you're doing right now and leave a positive review on your platform of choice. It's appreciated. And do check out past episodes at uncommons.ca. Otherwise, until next time.